Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Adams. Every week, we bring on some of the brightest leaders around the world to discuss issues facing high net worth individuals and family offices today. Hello, and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I have with me Victor Hagani. Victor is the founder and CIO of Elm Wealth, a technology-based online investment company and co-author of the book, The Missing Billionaires, A Guide to Better Financial Decisions. Throughout his career, he's been actively involved in markets and financial innovation, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast today to share what he's learned from his four decades of experience. Victor, welcome to the show. Great to be on your show, Brian. Thank you. Absolutely. And we're going to spend most of the time talking about the book and a lot of folks on here who have written books, and I've looked into it a little bit. It's such a monumental exercise. I always end up asking people what the motivation was because I've seen how much work it takes. And so this most recent effort, I love the premise, but maybe that's part of the story of what got you to actually go through the pain and the work that it takes to produce a full book. Yeah. So, well, we had been writing articles on the topics that we cover in the book for a long time, and it just felt like trying to pull them together into a coherent entity, you know, just felt like a good thing to do. And, you know, I think that Every author finds the motivation and feeling that there's a gap that's crying out to be filled. And, and we really felt that there was this big vacuum around the topics that we discuss in the book. So we thought we'd write this book and try to fill it. And it was a lot more work than we thought, but uh, it's been really satisfying now that it's behind us. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. And kudos to you because, you know, The Economist, one of their kind of short list of books of the year. 2023. So that's a huge feather in your cap. Let's go through the premise because I, I think the framework for how you thought about the content and that gap you're trying to fill will help launch us into a broader conversation. Sure. So the jumping off point in the book is to use this empirical fact that very few or basically none of today's very wealthy uh, families 
trace their wealth back to the wealth of families in 1900. And that's really surprising because investment returns from 1900 were so incredibly high uh, just in general, you know, without even worrying about making smart investments. And of course, people spent money, you know, so we built in consumption and taxes and family sizes getting bigger, but just this total lack of any families today or, or so few that trace back to those thousands of families that were very wealthy in 1900 really hints at or maybe cries out for an explanation. You know, what kind of decisions were people making? You know, what's the reason that we just don't see a lot more successful, you know, long-term financial outcomes? And that just happens to be a place that we can look and notice that that's going on. I mean, you know, I think we'd see it in all strata of wealth levels. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation that occurs often within our circles, which is <laughs> if you had taken the corpus and you have your baseline trust and estate work, right? You do everything that you can within the bounds of the law to organize that from a tax perspective. And then you just kind of put into the S&P and you run the numbers on the returns that you should be getting with a reasonable spend rate. And the numbers look pretty good over the last 25, 50, 100 years, whatever the timeline you want to use. But to your point, it doesn't produce the outcomes that you would think, right? So there's a whole host of possibilities there. I think we could riff on what some of them are, but you've really dialed in on one in particular or, or a short list of them that you see recurring over and over again. How did you, like, what was the data set? How did you think about having these conversations and, and figuring out what that causality was? Well, when I first it's kind of thought of this data point, if you will, you know, this data point of the missing billionaires, you know, I just thought, well, you know, people are making poor investment decisions and people are spending too much and people are paying fees that are too high. And just I had all of the normal things that anybody would guess, you know, could have contributed to that. But over time, as, as my co-author James and I have thought about things, we've really kind of narrowed our hypothesis down to poor decisions around uh, risk-taking, and, and specifically that we think that many families wind up having too concentrated of investing investment holdings, that they you know, invest in concentrated portfolios of things that they really understand, that things they feel a connection with. You know, it could be a family business. You know, in the case of the Vanderbilts, they just stayed in transportation and railroads right to the bitter end. The Astors, you know, were all in New York City real estate after they made, after the um, Jacob made his money in fur trading. And in general, you know, people just, you know, these wealthy families, they gravitate towards what they understand. And so they wind up with portfolios that are taking a lot of idiosyncratic risk in addition to the market risk. And then combining that with spending policies that are too rigid and that tend to go up you know, faster than CPI and and sort of setting into a spending level that's too high relative to their wealth and their long-term objectives. You put those things together and it just takes them off a cliff after a couple of decades. And you don't notice it over five years or 10 years, but it's over 30 years that it just comes in and really bites hard, you know, right at the end. And, you know, we could dive more deeply into that. You know, there's this example that I really like to use but we want to cover a lot of things. And, you know, we talk about this stuff a lot in the book, but it's just remarkable how getting those decisions just a little bit wrong 
is just hugely detrimental, you know, once the time scale really gets long, you know, as, as I say, it's not something that you notice in the short term. Right. So you kind of hone in on these two correlated concepts that really lever off each other in a lot of ways, which is the asset allocation, right? The investments that they make and then their spend rate, which are really two of the, the bigger pulls that, that you can control theoretically. And so can you go a little bit deeper in terms of investment sizing, asset allocation, and how it can, as you said, over a long time horizon, expand or shrink beyond maybe the kind of myopic view that you might have as a patriarch matriarch or an investment sure. professional? Sure. So yeah, I mean, our, in some ways you could really just compress everything that we say in the book down to one simple idea, which is that when we're making decisions, our decisions are always going to be made in this uncertain world where we don't know what's going to happen. So we're making decisions under uncertainty. And the core concept that we try to get across in the book is that you need to subtract a cost for risk-taking. You know, you should almost imagine that you have some separate account and whenever you're taking risks that you have to put money into that other account in order to help you make good decisions about risk-taking. So if there's kind of one golden rule of, of investing, you know, it's that to get more return, you have to take more risk. That doesn't mean that you can't take more risk without getting more return. It's really easy to take a lot of risk without getting return. But in order to get more return, you do need to take more risk. And the, but the more risk that you take, the more that you're eating into your compound returns, which is all that matters is how your wealth is growing. You know, it's not it's not what your average annual returns are. It's what your wealth is growing at. It's that compounding of returns. And so, you know, I really like this kind of simple toy example of imagining that, you know, you're uh, 65 years old, you have, let's say, a million dollars of savings or $10 million, whatever, doesn't matter. And you identify this investment portfolio that you really feel confident about because it's, it's these companies that you know very well. And you're really confident that this portfolio is going to generate a 5% real return for you over the long term, you know, after inflation. The only problem is that it's a concentrated portfolio because it's just a handful of stocks that you know really well. And those stocks, that portfolio that you have, instead of having the stock market volatility of 15 to 20% per annum, let's say this portfolio has a volatility of 30%. So, okay, that's, you know, like you say, okay, this seems like an okay thing to do. And then you think about your spending policy and you say, well, you know, I've got a million dollars. I'm going to make 5% on average each year, this arithmetic return. So why don't I spend 4% of my wealth and just let that grow with inflation? That should probably be okay. It gives me a little margin. So I'm going to spend $40,000 a year to begin with and let that grow with inflation. And hopefully my investment returns, you know, are going to be okay. Well, if you do that after 25 years, your median wealth level is zero. You have a greater than 50% chance of being broke after 25 years. And the reason for that is that that 30% volatility is taking that 5% average annual return and it's turning it into a compound return of just a half a percent a year. Imagine that the first year you make 35%, so you have $1.35 million. But then if you lose 25%, you're basically back at a million dollars again. You're at a million dollars, one million dollars and whatever, 1.01 1 
a million dollars. And so you've just made a half a percent compound return per annum because that volatility is killing you, you know, that volatility drag, as we call it. So now if you're spending $40,000 a year, you know, after two years, your median wealth, and we're just talking about this most likely outcome, the central outcome. Now your median wealth has dropped down to like 93% of what it was or something. And it keeps going down that median case until, you know, and then it accelerates, you know, because after it goes, you know, to 93, and then a couple of years later, you know, it's at 80. But once it gets down to like, once you're down to 50% of your wealth and you're spending 40,000 a year adjusted for inflation, you just fall off a cliff then, you know, there's no way to sustain it. Now, again, we're talking about the central case, but that central case is really important. So sure, there's this full distribution of outcomes where that 5% that you're making each year on average is still the relevant number because there's these upside cases that are tremendous, you know, but you're going to run out of money in half the cases. And, you know, I think that's just a really good description of what happens with a lot of families. And then that 4% is too high. Having it be fixed is adds risk into the whole thing. You know, keeping your spending growing with CPI is not really what people do. People tend to grow their spending more with per capita GDP growth, which is another 1% to 2% higher. Then you have kids, you know, the money starts to get split up. So the spending rate needs to be very low and very flexible if you're going to try to sustain that wealth over time. And you need to keep the risk of your portfolio much lower than 30%. You know, that, that's not going to be a good optimal you know, risk return setting for your wealth. Yeah, I was at a conference this week in, in Dallas and Ken Fisher, kind of the legendary aggregator, was one of the speakers. And he said, everyone's good with volatility on the way up. They're not good with it on the way down, right? Then they complain about it because it's capital. <laughs> so these two levers, let's get tactical. People should be focused on both of these things, right? So how they're allocating their capital, what that return versus risk reward is. But then also, it, it seems like the harder one, frankly, is the spend rate. To your point, mm -hmm. it's just really difficult to manage your spend rate and stay within whatever that percentage is and not have it, you know, continue to increase exponentially, it seems like is the bigger challenge. I think for a lot of people, yeah. And well, you know, I think that there's also, you know, a bunch of people, my mom is a great example, you know, where she's really underspending relative to her wealth too. And she's really happy. She's, she just doesn't want to spend more. She could spend a lot more, but she doesn't uh, want to do so. So, you know, I'm sure, you know, she's thought about it a lot and I'm sure what she's doing makes sense for her. She has a, she gets a lot of pleasure from knowing that when her life is over, that she's going to have, you know, funds that she's giving to her grandchildren. That makes her really happy. Well, talk more about that because I know you identified this as like the savings crisis, I think is is the term that you all use in your book. Go into that a little bit more in terms of why it can be problematic for people? Because people, I think, assume it's always going to be a positive thing. Sorry, you mean, um, sorry. Oh, Oversaving, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's right. So there's this general belief out there that, uh, you know, nationally we have a savings crisis because such a large fraction of the population seems to be undersaving for retirement. However, you know, there there are lots and lots of families that have saved enough for retirement and are spending at a rate where they're definitely going to be left with a lot of wealth 
when their lives are over, and unless we figure out some some sort of massive life extension in this late stage of of their lives. And so those people, you know, the people that are underspending, you know, I think really that they generally are doing that because they have a bequest desire that they're thinking that they do want to leave capital to their children or their grandchildren, sometimes to philanthropies as well. And so, uh, you know, I think that in those cases, people are doing things that are reasonably rational for themselves. It's more, you know, I think that where we see the policies, I mean, look, in the whole financial advisory community, like this 4% rule where you retire, you calculate 4% of your wealth, and then you spend that amount of money adjusted for inflation. You know, that's like a pretty crazy spending policy because it's disconnected from the investment policy that you're following. Like if you're 60% in stocks, your portfolio is going up and down. And to have a portfolio that's volatile, but with a fixed liability spending stream against it is, you know, is a disaster waiting to happen. And, and of course, you know, what happens in practice is that people, they spend that 4%, that they, they spend that number each year for a while. And then if their portfolio goes down a lot, then they adjust it downwards, you know, and if their portfolio goes up a lot, they spend a little bit more. So it's not as fixed as it seems, but that is the stated rule is this fixed, is this fixed spending. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. This is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at macinternational.com. So how do you combat that in practice? Do you have just an annual or a quarterly review and you kind of track portfolio return versus spend? I mean, what's best practice? Well, I think best practice is to have in mind that you're going to have a spending policy that's stated as a fraction of your wealth at each point in time. And to just go into that with the knowledge that that's what you're doing and not that you're just going to be able to spend this fixed amount. And once you think about the, the fact that you need to have this variable spending policy, then it might reflect back into your investments. And you say, well, geez, I'm taking way too, you know, that I don't want my spending to have to change this much. So I should really have less risk in my investment portfolio. So there's a feedback between those two interconnected parts of your financial planning that are really important. Like you can't just think about investing without investment risk, without thinking about how that translates into spending risk, which it has to, it just has to do that. I mean, whether it, uh, you know, whether you let it go and then you kind of fall off a cliff or whether you're adjusting slowly, there's no way to avoid the impact of that. Yeah, it seems the challenge, at least in our family, broadly speaking, is once you give somebody something, it's really hard to take it away. So once you give somebody the summer trip or the school or whatever that quality of life constant is, and once you give somebody a benefit, it's really they react poorly when you take it away. 
And so is it more about preemptively managing it to the downside initially and never getting into that hedonic treadmill type loop that can cause so many issues for people? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point uh, that to the extent that we form habits, you know, there's this whole area of the literature that's called habit formation. And it's a very real thing, you know, that bringing your expenditures down and taking away things that you've gotten used to is really, really painful. And, and that's why, you know, that's part of why we are naturally risk averse. And that risk aversion means that you need to charge yourself a cost for bearing risk. And all of this gets back to, you know, thinking about what's the right amount of risk for me, given my tolerance, given how strongly my habits form once I start to spend. It's really important to get that feedback between how you feel about spending. You know, how does more spending, how much better does more spending make you feel versus having to cut back? And that's going to really feed into your uh, investment decisions. And, you know, having the, a concentrated portfolio where you have, where you're running 20% or 30% annual risk of your portfolio is just really hard to square with how most people view their spending. You know, that most people are not really willing to let their spending be that variable. And I, I love this, you know, the proverb that you got from your father, you know, in terms of it, it's harder to hold on to wealth than to make it. It seems pretty true based on the data and the research that you reference and that we all kind of know anecdotally. My question, I guess, for you is, is that necessarily a bad thing? <laughs> well, you know, I think that from a societal level, you know, inequality does seem to have some real costs. You know, I think that inequality is something that bothers a lot of us. And, you know, I think that if we could get all of the benefits of a free, capitalist, vibrant system, you know, without having all that inequality, you know, that that would probably be a better system. But at the same time, I think that people just making better financial decisions is kind of a, a positive sum game as well. So, you know, and I think that if people make better financial decisions, you know, some of the extremes that we see in terms of wealth inequality probably wouldn't wouldn't be there because, right? I mean, how do how do people get to be so so wealthy? I mean, it's it's usually because they've taken more risk than maybe would have been sensible, and it turned out really well for them. So, you know, it's kind of hard. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit hard to know how things would be, but you know, we generally feel that people making better financial decisions would be a positive something for all of society. You know, yeah, I guess I meant it less from a social inequality perspective, which is a really slippery conversation, but more from a realization. I know the families that I know that have been able to sustain this over a long period of time, they just have a realization that there needs to be an entrepreneurial spirit and a wealth generation event within every generation. I think uh -huh. this concept of the exponential growth of your family, the rising rate of inflation and managing your spend rate are just really challenging, like we've kind of exposed here in our conversation, which means that, hey, somebody needs to be a wealth creator in every generation and to you know be able to sustain us long term. Where does that fit into the research and, and the analysis that you've done? Well, I think that that might explain also part of the whole kind of missing billionaires, you know, so the first generation does really well, you know, through some combination of skill and luck. And then, you know, the next generation is like, well, I've got to keep going with all of this. But 
they may not be endowed with quite as much skill or luck as that first generation. So I think that this idea of, of each generation kind of needing to add to the wealth by taking concentrated risks with the family's capital might be part of the explanation of what goes on, you know, why this risk-taking kind of goes on. And then I think it would be different if it's like, okay, the first generation makes all this money. Now they're just managing it in a very sensible way. And the second generation is like, okay, I'm going to now start some business with a very small amount of capital or, you know, whatever. I'm going to try to build another business. But that's not generally, I think, how it goes. It's more like, okay, you know, here's all this money. Like, look at the Bronfman family, right? I mean, it was like, okay, here's the first generation, next generation. They're like, okay, we've got to go bigger and bigger and turned out not very well for them, you know, but it's just natural that the succeeding generations are going to take the family's capital and try to go big with the family's capital. And and it's really weird, you know, but right, because it's like, okay, I mean, imagine that you're the second or third generation and there's all this capital and now you're like, okay, I need to be entrepreneurial. If I'm really successful, I can, you know, I can make $20 million through some businesses. And it's like, well, why should I bother with that? My family has 200 times that amount or 100 times that amount to begin with. So they gravitate towards taking the family's capital and really rolling the dice on it. And you do that enough times. And, you know, again, these are things that happen over many decades, you know, not over five or 10 years, but over 50 years. And you take enough of these big risks over 50 years and, you know, you're going to probably very likely wind up dissipating the capital really dramatically. Yeah. Well, it's important work, I think, managing that gap between the hardcore financial academic research and the, the much more kind of anecdotal. So you did a nice job of stepping into this intermediary space. It's interstitial between those two. So as we kind of wrap the conversation, if you're listening to this and you have a liquidity event on the horizon or maybe a recent wealth creation event and you're just starting a family office maybe, what are the right questions or frameworks to use to think about not necessarily how to invest, but how much to invest and what that sizing looks like from an asset allocation investment perspective? Well, yeah, I would say grab a copy of the book and try to calibrate your personal degree of risk aversion or your families. You know, think about, you know, if there's a philanthropic aspect to it, you know, to think about the risk aversion that should be governing those sizing decisions as well. But you know, in addition to trying to figure out your own, you know, sort of objective function, because maximizing your wealth is just not the right objective function. There has to be something that steps in between that and what you're trying to maximize. And we call it a utility function, you know, but it's it's putting some kind of cost of risk onto the risks that you take. But I would say that, you know, in addition to that, you know, is really to sort of think long and hard about how much you believe in the efficiency of markets, the difficulty of beating markets, and how you want to live your life. You know, do you want to spend your life, you know, managing and monitoring your wealth, or do you want to do other things with your life and have that wealth be managed or manage your wealth in a way that doesn't require constantly trying to do better than the average investor can do? So I think those two things really do go together. I mean, this whole, you know, risk and return are central in investing. And really thinking about that trade-off is the central to-do in managing your wealth. 
Yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but reflect on a lot of conversations I've had with families who've had a liquidity event where, you know, they get really wrapped up into this big number or the story the investment bankers tell them. And then a few years afterwards, they realize, gosh, after taxes, with inflation, with the growth of the family, with our spend rate and what a reasonable return is within our portfolio of you know asset allocation, we maybe should have held on to the portfolio company or the operating company because it's really challenging to replicate those type of returns, even if you do take big risk. And so I think this book is really helpful from that perspective as well. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yes. So thank you so much for joining us. Could you do a call out on the book and yourself if people are interested in more connecting with you and finding out more about the work you're doing? Sure. Well, yeah, the book is available, you know, on Amazon in all different formats. There's going to be a an audio book narrated by me that, you know, is coming online soon. And, you know, The Missing Billionaire is a guide to better financial decisions. My co-author James White is also my business partner. And uh, yeah, you can find out a lot more about the research behind it and sort of our investment philosophy and the foundations of how we think about things on our website, www.elmwealth.com. And, you know, you could just also search. I think that if you just search my name on the internet, you'll come to Elm Wealth and other things that we've done, other TED Talks and other things as well. Yeah, it's terrific. And I want to thank you again for coming on. For our listeners, please do leave us a review and a rating. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Victor, a question we ask people to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Yes. I, well, I have two daily practices. I think the one that really brings the most peace to my life is walking my dog or running with him twice a day. And then also the first thing that I do before I look at emails or my phone or anything else is I do about a half an hour of some stretches and exercises on the floor before my coffee or anything else. And I really find that doing that just helps helps a lot. And having the discipline to not look at that telephone is a really good thing. It just makes me feel like I have I have more power over my life. Victor, awesome. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for the time and best of luck with the book and all the other work that you do moving forward. Thank you so much, Brian. Very appreciated. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.